0: Everyone, this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to our newest podcast, Stryker Talks. Few companies in the medical device industry touch the entire spectrum of healthcare like Stryker. From accident scenes to ERs, from ORs to patient rooms, Stryker delivers the supplies, tools, and devices used to provide patients with the highest quality of care. In this podcast, we'll talk with the company's leaders to gain a better understanding of how innovation, new technologies, and teamwork will further Stryker's mission. Let's go! Hey everyone, this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Stryker Talks podcast. Our guest today is Jim Rucci. He's the president of Neurovascular. Jim took the job a little earlier this year. So we're going to cover the neurovascular business scenario we've covered in the Striker Talks podcast before with Jim's predecessor, as we'll get into this podcast, but so much has happened in this space. It's such a fast-growing area and such an important one as well. We'll talk about the recent strategic acquisition of Ceres and some of Stryker Neurovascular's newest products and technologies. But before we begin this conversation, I'd like to bring in our sponsor, Zeus. We're talking with Mike Herr. Mike is the West Regional Sales Manager for Zeus. Mike, tell us about Zeus.
1: Yeah. So Zeus has been in business since 1966. We're a custom polymer solutions manufacturer. So we primarily work with the medical device field. And within the medical device field, I would say the bulk of that is with catheter manufacturing, really specializing in smaller tight tolerance tubing that's used, for example, let's say in in a neurovascular catheter, really pushing the limits of technology and tolerances to really give our customers that innovative and competitive advantage. We work with customers that are really across the gamut. So if you look at, you know, major tier one OEMs all the way down to startups and, and universities, ultimately the, the end goal for for Zeus is to partner with our customers and provide the best in patient care and, and to ultimately change and save lives.
0: Well, that's great. We'll hear more from Mike Herr and Zeus a little later in the podcast but you don't need to wait to find out more information you can go to zeus's website go to zeusinc.com that's Zeus And now let's get this conversation started well Jim Marucci, welcome to the podcast well thanks so much tom i appreciate you having me look it's forward to it great to have neurovascular back we had your predecessor mark fall on back in uh, June of 2022. Got a great overview of the business then, but we could certainly revisit and talk about some new acquisitions. But first of all, of course, we want to learn about you and how you found your way here. But before that, how'd you find your way into the medtech industry? You're a West Point person, right? You were in the military at the very start?
2: Yeah, I was, Tom. And you know, I made the decision to get out in the late 90s. And it was a tough decision. Frankly, the The economy was great. There were many options. I was considering going back to business school. Uh, I had all the right jobs in the military. But when I decided to get out, I went to one of these junior military officer recruiting firms and uh, had a variety of different options. But the one that really stuck out to me was in the med device space and the job description. I still remember to this day. It was pretty cool. Um, It was for mechanical heart valves. And being able to teach, train and educate cardiac surgeons on implanting our devices was just to me, it seemed unbelievable in terms of the responsibility and the level of sophistication required. So I jumped into the cardiac space and uh, sold for a few years there. That was my first entrance into med device.
0: What was it uh, that was appealing? I mean, it sounds very cool to be able to, to, <laughs> to understand it, to teach about a mechanical heart But What was the, the calling?
2: Yeah, so we had uh, mechanical heart valves, obviously, that were very specific in terms of the implant techniques required at the time. We did not have a tissue valve, the company I was with. It was all mechanical, so very specific training protocols, but being able to stand right next to anesthesia and uh, look over and watch a beating heart and see the entire process of the heart being stopped and then uh, helping advise the surgeon on the implant technique, to me, it just seemed such a great level of responsibility for a great sense of purpose and really kind of helping, obviously, the surgeon as well as kind of having an impact on the patient and watching and understanding the protocol for how it impacts patients' lives longer term is just tremendous for me.
0: That's great. And you found your way to Striker shortly after. How did that happen?
2: Yeah, so I was with that company for two years. Great products, a great company. Uh, I then left there and went into a foray into the tech space, <laughs> curly tech before the tech bubble burst, and was excited about that space as well for opportunity. It was um, around selling storage, enterprise storage systems. So I jumped out of MedDevice. It took me about a year, Tom, to realize how much I missed MedDevice. So I actually got a call from a recruiter in Boston who was a former Striker endoscopy sales rep, and he said, "Hey, just come have a cup of coffee with me." I happened to be in Boston that day. I was um, selling in the Northeast at the time to this tech company, and I just remember meeting the hiring manager, meeting this recruiter, and realizing kind of the impact that culture could have on me. They felt like me, they talked like me, and understood kind of the importance of what it felt like to be around. You know, what I would say at the time, which felt kind of analogous to the military, which was high drive and low ego type of personality was just great. I, it intrigued me to kind of dig a level deeper. So uh, I came to Striker in 2001 in sales for a communications division. We were building out that sales force. It was an acquisition that Striker and DOS He had done a few years prior. But when I came to it, I, I then realized, and I, I often tell a story about how much better I realized a culture could be from being with two companies that were great companies and great products, but The culture wasn't an emphasis of the two prior companies prior to Striker, so I've always appreciated that and uh, always tell that story from a leadership perspective.
0: How do you define Striker's culture to someone you're talking to at a a barbecue or 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 party?
2: Well, that's a that's actually a really great and timely question, Tom. As we talk about it a lot, it could take on a lot of different meanings. But as we define our cultural tenets, and this is something I think for me has gotten you know my 22 years has gotten stronger and becoming more front and center for those that are looking to come into Striker or, like you said, the backyard barbecue. And there's really four elements. It's, uh, it's about defining our purpose. It's about defining our talent and our talent offense, which obviously we put a lot of time and emphasis into. It's about defining growth and relationships. So really those four attributes to me help define our culture. Uh, and it's, it's really a way of how we get things done. Obviously, we have our, our mission and values as a company. We have our company strategy, but thinking about our culture in particular, it's, it's really how we interact with each other, how we interact with our customers, and how we get things done.
0: Interesting. Well, oh, that's that's something that I hear uh, hear consistently throughout these podcasts. So you went from Stryker Communications to Stryker Advanced Guidance Technologies in 2012. What was that transition like? Oh, and this is yeah. this is in Flower Mound, Texas, where they have the uh, the surgical suite now, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah.
2: So I spent about 11 years with our communications business in a variety of roles, sales and marketing mostly, a little bit in the operations side, and dabbling in kind of helping with the project management side of that. But for the most part, those 11 years were geared around designing, integrating and helping build operating rooms that were geared around specific workflow. Uh, And for a period of time, it was actually an overlay with our orthopedics division. So helping very specifically design rooms for orthopedic surgery. So after about 11 years in that business and culminated with leading our marketing team, I moved over to, uh, as you referenced, advanced guidance technologies that essentially was our navigation business or image-guided business, for image-guided surgery, we covered, obviously, orthopedics at the time for both knee and hip. We also covered cranial, spine, and ENT surgery. So that business was based in Flower Mound, Texas, it was part of our instruments division and was a suite of technology or applications on one platform that we can go across multiple specialties, both image-guided and image-lifts. And so I did that transition in 2012.
0: And you were there when uh, the Mako acquisition closed. I'm curious, how did that sort of impact what what you were doing? It's uh, certainly an added feature to to all that you were talking about and working on.
2: It was. Yeah. So we actually competed at the time with Mako from an orthopedic navigation
0: perspective. (laughs) So
2: a little bit of an adjustment there. Uh, We kind of joke around about it now looking back, but I think we handled it very, very well. Uh, We obviously had previously planned to understand that that was coming in the market and regardless of if Stryker had acquired Mako, we knew that we needed to shift our portfolio to more of the sophisticated approach for cranial and spine. So that had been underway already for about the previous two years. We obviously had some internal programs looking at orthopedic robotics at the time. So we had taken the foresight of that and shifted our portfolio to look at neuro spine and ENT guided surgery at the time. So. We were trying to denounce and move away from orthopedic guidance at the time for navigation and shift that to neurospine But mm-hmm. It was good. It was good. A lot, a lot of lessons learned looking back at the time.
0: And what's it like when that acquisition like that happens of someone you had been sort of bumping elbows against for a time and now they're a member of the team? I'm sure it's a it's a great positive to have that to bring to bear. It's
2: tremendous. You know, At the time, you have this sense of pride in terms of what you're doing. And of course, we all despise our competition, but once that acquisition was done it was tremendous because I think it it took a different level of understanding kind of where we we're going as a company and understanding the resources the magnitude and just the size and scale of that you look back back now and it's just there's so many great collaborative lessons learned that came out of it as an example back in those early days we were working on two different camera technologies for both navigation and mako looking at understanding how those resources could come together and I I think you know as I mentioned the early days were some some bruises and bumps along the way uh, from two thousand and thirteen, probably to two thousand and fifteen, but the lessons learned now looking back were tremendous, and I think it's made us a lot stronger as a company, especially from a collaboration approach yeah obviously there's there's the whole r and d side of it but but even how we've changed and understood how we can work together on the commercial side it's it's done worlds of good for us
0: and I don't think people appreciate i certainly forget that ten years ago there was still very much a debate as to. Was surgical robotics going to take off? Was it going to be part of the future? And uh, certainly Stryker's acquisition of Mako was a uh, planting of a big flag saying, yes, this is, uh, this is here to stay and it's important.
2: Right. Yeah. yeah it's, it's been tremendous for us, obviously, and will continue to be in the future as well.
0: Great. And you'd moved on to uh, Stryker Neurosurgical, and that's, a, that's an interesting field as well. I mean, we're, we've been talking a lot about different interfaces with the brain at our conferences and on our podcast, neuromodulation, neurovascular, of course, which we'll talk about in a moment but talk about the the neurosurgical space, the work that was done there and the advances in that area because the brain, as it was brought up at Device Talks West, kind of like the new heart. There's really a a great frontier there in, in treating the maladies of the brain.
2: Yeah, it's a great discussion for a number of reasons, Tom. And when I took on that business, it was actually defined as NSE. It stood for Neuro, Spine, and ENT. And obviously, Our approach has been to look at how we continue to specialize with our customers and focus. So we did the acquisition of Intellis in 2018, and we split off the E and became Striker ENT. That allowed us to focus and just go deeper into neurosurgical. And that is really a way that we can align with our customers, go deeper, and truly solve problems. And I think we're just scratching the surface from a neuro perspective a company. I'm sure you've heard about the neurotechnology approach. We have nine different businesses across the Stryker landscape that are in and around the neurospace, but yet there's areas that we are just, I guess I said, scratching the surface on. So there's a world of opportunity there to think about what could be. The way I think about it in transitioning from neurosurgical to neurovascular, there's also many different other parts of the body and anatomies that we have taken a open to minimally invasive approach And that's the way I view this transition into into neurovascular as well, is there are going to be procedures that are done in the future from an endovascular perspective that today are being done open. And we see the evidence of that now. So it's an exciting field. I think there's so much more, as you mentioned, around the world of BCI and brain-computer interface, but even the world of functional. And there's so much we don't know and have yet to explore about the brain. And I I think it's uh, in the infancy
0: stages of, of exploring the minimally invasive approach we'll take a quick break from this interview to bring back our sponsor zeus once again i'm speaking with mike Herr. mike is west regional sales manager at zeus mike zeus is an enormous company how do your metal device customers engage with zeus
1: Every territory region has a local dedicated field sales team that consists of a territory manager and a field application engineer, and they work directly with our customers to uh, really ensure that we're helping them design in the right products for their application. We're very quick to provide samples, prototypes. We have a rapid development program really to get product into our customers' hands as quickly as possible at that critical design stage very early on. Aside from that, you know, obviously we work with with the supply chain and production teams to to build inefficiencies there wherever we can. And, you know, from an outside the box standpoint, we also have programs such as tech days and innovation days where we share our technology and our customers share their technology with us and really work together to make sure that we're innovating together. Additionally, Zeus has a contract manufacturing business unit as well. Zeus Catheter Solutions works with our customer to design catheters and also has two contract manufacturing facilities to take the designs into production.
0: And finally, Mike, I'm sure you talk to a lot of people, a lot of customers in the medical device industry. What are some of the trends you're seeing based upon what you're hearing from customers?
1: I think, you know, the easy answer there is, is always smaller, more flexible, thinner walls on liners. But I, I really think the, the trick there is to be able to provide that without losing quality or any of the performance characteristics that, that you know, our customers are looking for. So I, I think the idea for our customers is to be able to, to gain greater access, whether it be to the brain or the lungs or the heart to deploy their devices, but not jeopardize or not sacrifice, perhaps is a better word, any of the performance that they need to be able to deploy the devices that they need. So a quick example of of something Zeus developed back, I think it was released about two years ago, which is our PTFE streamliner over the wire. We were actually able to extrude a PTFE onto a silver-plated copper mandrel and reduce our wall thickness by 20%. So essentially you're getting the performance of an extruded liner with some of the characteristics and flexibility of you know, a dip coated liner. Our Streamliner Over the Wire products are part of our Streamliner PTFE Liner Series and can be found on zeusinc.com. These products are also available via sample and are part of our new product development program.
0: That's great, Mike. And how can folks get samples and find out more?
1: For samples or prototypes, reach out to your local account manager or feel free to contact me at Her, M-H-E-R-R, at Zeusinc.com.
0: Mike, thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Striker Talks. And thanks, of course, to Zeus for sponsoring this particular podcast. Once again, if you'd like to find out more about Zeus, go to its website. It's zeusinc.com. That is zeusinc.com. So the move over and you took over at neurovascular earlier this year. I'm curious. I mean, you're both focusing on on the same part of the body, but what sort of similarities are there in the businesses and the products and what are the differences?
2: Yeah. So I would say there's not a ton of overlap. There are some potential procedures that that, as I mentioned, could be done in a different way in the future as we think about that and deployment through an endovascular perspective and through a catheter. We're seeing evidence of that now in the early days, but the biggest similarity, Tom, is really the call point as we've seen. Obviously, this field was started by the interventional neuroradiologists and interventional neurologists came on. The progression, I'd say, really over the last five to seven years has been the endovascular neurosurgeon becoming a bigger percentage of the caregiving continuum there. So. The commonality is really around the customer base. The differences are much more vast because this is a global business with a global footprint and the small connected customers around the globe. The intimacy, I should say, versus small are really telling in terms of looking at how to advance the field. So I think our customers are very connected globally. This procedure obviously is also done in the interventional suite versus an OR. So there are some differences that I think are more stark than the similarities.
0: That's a great point about the international. I remember the conversation that I had with Mark Paul talking about the scope. And I I think John Daniel brought it up at Device Talks West as well, just how many countries, how international this particular business and Striker is compared to, to others. Can you give us a sense of how many countries you're working in? And how is the, if I were to slice up the world market pie, like what percentage is OUS versus US?
2: Yes, yeah, so our business, Tom, is definitely an anomaly comparatively within Stryker. Yeah. Our business is greater internationally. It's, it's, uh, just give you rough numbers and say it's greater than 60% internationally and less than 40% in the US. So that is a stark difference to many of our other businesses. And as I mentioned, I think the reasoning goes back to how this field started the connected customer base and looking at trying to deliver stroke care around the world, which is a huge, massive opportunity to look at that in a different light. So, it is different. It's how we acquired this business from Boston Scientific. It was already built out, but we we operate in about 65 countries right now. Wow. And there's a model that is both direct and indirect in certain markets. But maybe the best thing to think about for us is how we look at designing products and going out and getting voice of customer. We think about it from a global perspective. So that takes into account regulatory, quality, clinical considerations around the globe so that when we launch a product... It may not launch around the globe simultaneously at one time, but over the next three, four five years, we'll get the benefit of seeing the clinical outcomes and then acceptance in different markets around the globe. So that gives us scale. It helps R&D costs and helps bring the, the total cost of developing products down as we look at the global revenue impact for designing products.
0: Is there sort of a, a noticeable difference or is there a difference between one country and another in terms of what type of products are used here, but maybe not used there? Or is it pretty uniform? in adoption, that a, that a new product is received in the same or similar fashion from, from country to country?
2: The products are similar, Tom, but I think the acceptance criteria, certain countries are obviously more conservative and they want to see that data and they want to prove out the trends. So it does take a little bit longer in some markets to see that evolution of certain products that are more conservative by country.
0: Interesting. And how do you as a as a manager of this global business, how are you maintaining communications and, and getting out and meeting with those customers are you earning up some freaking flyer miles right now or i, I have yeah
2: it's <laughs> been uh it's been a, a different transition for sure but i think it's important to get in all these geographies and understand the culture understand uh, the customers and the market environment so i have been uh been traveling quite a bit this year uh, and making sure that i can get out to all, all the different markets and it's been fascinating to learn especially For us, the the markets in Asia are just tremendous, and you look at the population growth and the sophistication of of developing stroke care in these markets, it's been wonderful.
0: Mm. And these are procedures that are still largely or almost exclusively done in in larger hospitals, right? You're not really seeing the the pull to ASCs or clinical settings for for these type of procedures, I would imagine.
2: Correct. Uh, It's not limited to just academic medical centers, obviously, but yeah. I would say we are not seeing a transition into ambulatory centers. It is a discussion, though, on what could be done in the future around different types of procedures that may not require access to uh, an intensive care, neurointensive care unit, or a neuro-OR. So there are some discussions about procedures that could be done as obviously you look at many other trends across different segments of the industry and, and that trend about obviously easier access and reducing total cost of the procedure.
0: Interesting. And do you find yourself tapping into your, your work at advanced guidance technologies in that? And again, I listened to John Daniels' presentation this week, and he talked about, you know, this is a specialty that's very much based upon sight and touch. So there's an opportunity for AR and for advanced imaging technologies that could really advance this field. Do you, do you kind of feel like you're where you were with surgical robotics maybe 10 years ago, kind of on the cusp of something big?
2: I do. I think we look at the future, obviously, as we talked about, not only the procedural evolution of endovascular procedures being a greater percentage of how certain procedures are being done today, but you also look at the technology adoption. Obviously, there's the world of, of robotics and neurovascular. There's AI and digital, which I, I know are, are big buzzwords, but we look at what could be done there very specifically in terms of applications. So obviously, it, it involves imaging, and there's multiple facets there that we need to be thinking about. So I do get excited thinking about what could be, there are a few projects that we are intently focused on and excited about. And I think you're familiar with our Trey organization, Digital Robotics Enabling Tech, and able to leverage some of our technology blocks there across multiple different uh, businesses. So there are things that we, uh, we think about on a constant basis to continue to look at procedural evolution and just making access to care and information easier.
0: Interesting. Let's uh, review some some highlights from your portfolio. Let's talk first about your big acquisition this year, Saris Endovascular. I know that sort of the timing of that was just as you were coming aboard, but I'm sure you're uh, part of the decision and, and definitely part of the strategy going forward. What was the importance of Saris and what does that add to to Stryker's Neurovascular Program?
2: Yeah, so we're very excited about the acquisition of Saris Endovascular. Obviously, it, it fulfilled a gap in our portfolio for wide-neck bifurcated aneurysms, and looking at this one-and-done approach. So we do view that as accretive a to overall hemorrhagic portfolio. And we obviously have a very, very rich history with the target coil. And we look at what we've done over the years in terms of building out a portfolio that is really completing our total portfolio in hemorrhagic. So we're very excited about that. The feedback's been tremendous. We are commercial in Europe. Obviously, we're working through the clinical study here in the United States. And looking at an FDA approval and PMA, post-PMA submission down the road. So we're working hard on that, but we're very excited about the potential there and ease of use. And, you know, as we all know, the most important pieces is is looking at simplification and being easier to use and also saving time and reducing costs. So I think having those considerations in mind and working with our customers and getting their feedback has been really important for
0: us. Interesting. And what about some of your organic or internal launches? You mentioned the the Target Coil. Is there a new? coil that was launched this year the tetra detachable or talk a bit about the target portfolio if you would
2: yeah it's as i mentioned tom it's a very rich portfolio for us it goes back a long way since the introduction of the target coils back when boston scientific had acquired uh, target therapeutics so there's a long history there of having the the first detachable coil obviously the uh, market leader across the world and uh, the tetra launch this year was was significant for us as it fulfilled it Again, a gap in, in smaller aneurysms, less than four millimeters. So uh, looking at having both the application for framing and filling has been received very, very well. And the softness that our customers are looking for for smaller aneurysms has been very well received. And, and that is uh, in the process of being rolled out across the globe. As I referenced earlier, there's a cadence launch. Uh, so we launched it in the US and obviously you're launching in other markets. Uh, we've launched in Japan as well. And then other markets are, are in process as well. So we're very excited about that.
0: What does future innovation look like for you? I know, again, we had John Daniel at Device Talks West talking about your internal program. You're clearly always on the hunt for external programs as well, things to acquire. What do you see uh, developing over the next three to four years?
2: Yeah, I think one of the most important things for us is to make sure, you know going back to understanding why we do what we do and our purpose, it really is to solve problems. And it's <laughs> it's to solve customer problems, clinically, procedurally, looking at kind of how that all works together. So if we're thinking about things the right way, we are involved in obviously every aspect of understanding kind of the workflow and how procedures will change over time and not just developing the next iteration of a new product, but really, again, trying to solve problems. So that's something I think our R&D teams are intently focused on. We've talked about this before as well, Tom. I, I know when we think about R&D, there's organic R&D and inorganic and using both as a potential lever there, organic meaning our internal teams and inorganic looking at M&A opportunities and there's a lot, as you well know, going on in the neurovascular space, a lot of innovation and looking at some of these companies that are new to market. And just making sure, again, that we are trying to, as I mentioned earlier, remove cost, make things easier and safer with better outcomes. So, understanding how all those play together is, is very important for us. But I do get excited thinking about, as I just referenced a little bit ago, what could be in the future. And that is around applications for AI, AR, VR, and some of the things that we are working on as a company with these. Um, Building blocks or technology blocks, if you will, that can go across multiple divisions and applications for us. So we do invest a lot in this business back into R and D. And when we say R and D, that also involves clinical. So our portfolio is the depth and breadth that we have, but also looking at innovation more than just products. So it's how do we continue to provide outcomes driven evidence? How do we look at products for training, proctoring, remote education? And how do we make sure that we are thinking about investing? into making access for stroke care more complete. I think you know some of the statistics as well. I mean the applications that we're looking at globally, we're just scratching the surface as we know roughly 10% of the overall volume is being treated today. So it's more about market access and how do we continue to educate, teach and train not only our physicians but the overall general population about where we can uh, we can provide better stroke care.
0: And that certainly is something that came up in terms of providing the right kind of care to more people. I think it, I was at a conference recently where uh, Robert Calif, the FDA commissioner, just talked about the difference being whether or not you were ten miles away from a, a center that was that was equipped to, to handle your stroke, and the difference of being with close to that center is life or death. So I'm sure that's something that is the difference between life and death. So I'm certain that it's something that you're focused on, that Stryker Neurovascular is focused on, just ensuring that those technologies are getting out. Do you have a sense yet? I know you're new to the job, but what the future future might look like to bring some of that care to those areas that maybe aren't currently getting it? Are we talking about robotics? Are we talking about other sort of remote possibilities? And, I, and I'm asking you to be somewhat speculative here. So Yeah,
2: for sure. No, glad to. And again, I've uh, as I mentioned, I've traveled a lot. I think keeping the global perspective in mind it's certainly important as you mentioned, access and it's different, right? It's it's population health and the things yep. that we're thinking about on a constant basis. Today, as it stands, it is leveraging our current platforms, which is again using video for remote teaching, education, training, proctoring. And you know, we learned a lot of lessons throughout COVID as well, and in this business and the importance of clinical support and some of the work that our our sales reps and territory managers do and being able to walk physicians through procedures and having to do that, you know, over an iPhone and just, you know, that there's a need there, right? And so you fast forward, I do think that there is a place for robotics. I think it's uh, defining what the value proposition is. And if we're thinking about it the right way, again, it goes back to improved patient outcomes, predictability, safer surgery. But within this space in particular, there's a tremendous understanding of again, the disparity between population health and how do we get the outreach to some of these areas of the world where we know that patients are dying just because they don't have access to care. So I do think there's a place for robotics. I do think it's going to be fascinating to understand how policy may need to change to look at either certifications, reimbursement, licensure. There's a whole lot there, but I do believe that the technology will be a driving force of that. So I'm not sure if that's going to be Three years out or to the next <laughs> 10 or 12 or 15 years out. But it's something we are very close to learning, listening, and, and uh, understanding, again, what the needs are from our customers.
0: That's great. Well, it's, a, it's an important and an exciting place you're in now, Jim. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks so much, Tom. I appreciate it. All right, well, that is a wrap. Thank you, Zeus, for sponsoring this episode of the Striker Talks podcast. Thank you to our listeners for being part of this podcast. You could do us a few favors. Please share this podcast on your social media channels. And while you're there on LinkedIn, please connect with me. I am Tom Salemi at Device Talks. Connect with me, connect with Device Talks. And also, please subscribe to our Device Talks podcast network. You'll get future episodes of Striker Talks sent directly to you as well as our other many great podcasts. Thanks again for joining us and we look forward to bringing you another episode of Striker Talks very soon. Take care, everybody.